Hey, so I realize people are still getting coffee, um, but I've just got a lot of material to cover and I really want to get to questions. So I'm just going to go ahead and start and feel free to uh, get your coffee and get settled. So my name is Austin Stapella, and I've been attending All Souls for around three years. I graduated Wheaton College two years ago with a degree in Ancient Languages and Biblical Studies, and I'm continuing my education by attending Duke Divinity School this fall. So during the gap between my undergraduate and my graduate studies, I've dedicated most of my time to studying the Apostle Paul. I've translated all the letters attributed to him, and I've been reading scholarship devoted to him. And so today, I just want to talk about my studies on the Apostle Paul, and specifically, Paul's understanding of God's justice. So to do this, I will be primarily drawing from Douglas Campbell's The Deliverance of God, which I've got right here. It's a little weighty. Um, but Campbell is a New Testament scholar at Duke Divinity School, and so I hope to study under him when I get there. Um, Pauline scholar Chris Tilling has called Deliverance the most important book on Paul in the last 40 years. It has blurbs from Alan Torrance, Michael Gorman, um, N.T. Wright, and John Barclay. So these are some pretty big names in the New Testament studies world. Um, so to begin, I want to analyze the typical modern reading of Paul, which extracts a certain gospel narrative from his letters. And Campbell is going to call this reading justification theory. So we're probably all familiar with justification theory, even if we don't know it by that name. It figures most prominently in evangelistic contexts. So I've read a lot of pamphlets and tracts, and this is what I've found in nearly all of them. So justification theory primarily derives their gospel from, from uh, Romans 1 through 4, which it considers to be the heart of Paul's gospel. So you can think of Romans Road, this kind of movement from the problem to the solution, and this how to get saved kind of uh, trajectory. So I want to start by examining justification theory, by examining its propositions. So it starts out with the claim that God is just. So this isn't a controversial claim, but it understands God's justice in a very specific way, namely that God's justice is retributive. It's primarily about giving to each as he deserves according to his works. So God is going to rule in favor of those who are righteous and against those who are unrighteous. Now the twist is that no one is righteous, right? And so thus everyone will be condemned. But God, who does not want this to happen, sends Jesus. But he is still committed to judging retributively. So Jesus then merits the status of righteous, and he is given the just punishment that is due to sinners. And this creates a new contract with God, one that can now be accessed by faith. And so the person who has faith is then given Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus is given his just punishment, and thereby satisfying the demands of God's retributive justice. And so now on the day of judgment with Jesus' righteousness, the person who has faith will receive the positive verdict from God and be given eternal life. And so what I want to point out is that the controlling analogy for God's justice in justification theory is judicial, and it assumes that the same is true of Paul. So there are many implications to this way of reading Paul, but I want to focus on one major one. In justification theory, God's fundamental posture towards humanity is one of retribution, one of retributive justice. God primarily relates to us not like a father who is irrevocably committed to his children, nor even a king who is determined to save his people, 
but like a judge looking at a nameless rap sheet. At the most basic level, God looks at us like a list of things we have done and decides what to do with us from there with no prior commitment to us. And so the basis of any relationship with God in justification theory, whether good or bad, is a legal contract. Now, if someone could object, doesn't God send Jesus out of his love? So doesn't that mean that God does, in fact, love us? Well, certainly, justification theory maintains that God sends his son out of his love, but this is only supplemental to his more basic relationship with us, which is categorized by this legal contract. Jesus' death primarily functions as a satisfaction of God's retributive justice. And this means that, in a sense, God must be conditioned by this paid penalty into offering us an alternative, which is categorized by love. And furthermore, we only access this alternative if we meet a prior condition, namely faith. If we fail to meet this condition, we experience God as he most basically is, a judge who will punish and execute us. And so love in justification theory is a secondary or supplemental characteristic of God, and it's incorporated in the broader scheme of retribution. Now, this is not to imply that everyone who accepts justification theory conceptualizes God in this way. Rather, what I mean to say is that these are the implications of justification theory's logic, and to object to these implications is to betray that logic. Now, the reason we do not accept most of these implications, the reason most of us do not see God in this way, is because we do not fully accept the logic of justification theory. We're not full-fledged justification theorists. Instead, we're working with two different concepts of who God is, one in which his primary orientation towards us is retributive justice, and another in which it is love. Justification theory is how we speak about God in our tracts, in our pamphlets, and our altar calls, but it is typically not how we speak about him in our liturgy and our worship songs. And so the question I want to focus on is this. Does Paul understand God's justice as retributive? So that is to say, is the primary threat against humanity our sin in the face of God's justice? So as I stated before, justification theory understands Romans 1 through 4 to be the heart of Paul's gospel. And so if we are to accept this claim that God's justice is retributive, then we must ensure that we understand Romans 1 through 4 rightly. So Campbell, he proposes a new way of reading Romans 1 through 4, one that I find largely convincing. So it's, it's a novel interpretation, and it might seem a little bit strange, but it's based on a synthesis of three well-established interpretations of Paul's letters that nearly every scholar agrees on. So the first insight that he's drawing from is this, that in Galatians 2 through 4 and Philippians 3, Paul is arguing with a rival Jewish missionary group who assert that to be given the positive verdict on the day of the Lord, one must be circumcised and observe the written teachings of the law. So number two, Paul uses the terms works, law, justification, and justice rarely outside these passages in which he is arguing with this rival missionary group. Now, the notable exception to this is Romans 1 through 4. Here we see a dense concentration of these terms, but apparently we don't see the rival missionary group anywhere. And three, scholars have long recognized that Romans 1 through 4 is a kind of dialogue. So sometimes this is thought to be between Paul and a student or Paul asking questions to himself, but a dialogue is clearly happening in this passage. And so he synthesizes these insights, and he proposes that one through four 
is a diatribe, essentially like a mock debate, between Paul and the rival missionary group from Galatians and Philippians. So Campbell calls this rival group the teachers. So in this reading, one person would play the part of Paul, and another person would play the part of the teachers. And they have this mock debate to reiterate the gospel of the teachers and allow the person who is playing Paul to show the weaknesses of the teacher's argument. So in a few moments, I want to invite my wife Becky and Rob Lewis up here, and they're going to perform this mock debate by reading the relevant section from the letter to the Romans uh, from my translation. So Rob is going to be uh, playing the teacher, and Becky will be playing Paul. Uh, so before uh, Becky and Rob read this passage, I just want to provide an overview of the dialogue and explain some key concepts. So I'm not going to be able to explain these arguments in depth because of time constraints, but if you're interested in them, I encourage you to read uh, The Deliverance of God, or also Campbell has a smaller book that kind of explains his arguments uh, more briefly. Uh, so after a short introduction from Paul in Romans chapter 1, the mock debate is going to commence. And it begins with the teacher. So what is the teacher's message? Well, as I stated before, the teachers are Jewish missionaries. Now, they might be Jewish Christians. Some scholars have speculated this. But they are certainly Jewish in some capacity. And their central premise is that God's justice is retributive. God is going to judge everyone according to their works, using the law as his standard. And so for the Gentile Christian converts to be saved, they must be circumcised, and they must follow the written teachings of the law. Now, this begs the question, what is the law? Well, justification theory tends to divide the law into two parts. Now, the first part is this universal moral code, which can be found in written form in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and it can be also discerned from nature. So this universal moral code is the criteria based on which God will judge humanity. These are things like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet. And then the second part are these more specific ceremonial codes, which are only binding on historic Israel. These are like do not eat pork, practice the Sabbath, observe the Jewish calendar. Now the problem with this reading is that we actually don't really see first century Jews defining the law in this way. Rather, for them, the law was the Torah, all the first five books of the Old Testament, all the written precepts within them. So a first century Jew would explain the explanation of Torah from the premise that God has designed the world in a certain way, and he has designed humans to function within the world in a certain way. So Torah, then, is God's gracious gift which reveals how he intended humanity to interact with the world. And it reveals that God has designed human beings not to covet, but also to not eat pork, to not murder, and to rest on the Sabbath to not commit adultery and to fast when the moon is in one position and feast when it's in another. However, following Torah is not just about this life. It also has implications for the life to come. So a common motif for first century Jews is that God has set before humanity two paths. They draw this from Deuteronomy 30. There's this path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. And so Torah then can be thought of as like the roadmap that leads one down the path towards life. So Torah is God's gift to humanity, which teaches human beings how they are to function within the world. And ultimately, following it is going to lead to their resurrection. This is all assumed by the teacher, this rival missionary. 
He's claiming that if the Gentile converts want to follow the path to life, they need to follow the teachings of the Torah. And if they fail to do so, they will go down the path to death. So what is their problem with Paul's gospel? Well, at some point, Paul is going to adopt a Torah-free gospel, meaning that he preached that circumcision and observance of the written teachings of Torah are superfluous for Gentile Christian converts. And so the teachers, they see this as a fundamentally irresponsible move. We might imagine them saying something like, Paul, we Jews have in the Torah the roadmap to life. By not giving this roadmap to the Gentiles, you are essentially consigning them down the path that leads to death. And so the teachers then go to Rome and they proclaim their message that circumcision and following the written teachings of Torah are essential to being resurrected on the day of the Lord. And all who refuse to do so are going to be willfully spiting God's gift and will be condemned to death on the day of judgment. So what we're about to hear Rob recite is the bad news section of the teacher's gospel, which he's going to use to scare the Gentile Christian converts into getting circumcised and to observing the teachings of the Torah. In his opening remarks, the teacher is going to say that the Gentiles have sufficient knowledge um, regarding God's commandments, and this is going to make them culpable. So they reject this knowledge, though, and this leads them into all sorts of moral depravity, ultimately leading God to condemn them to death. Now, implicit in this dialogue is that this is what human beings are like without the Torah. The Gentile Christians must be circumcised and must observe Torah. Torah will lead them to moral improvement, and then and only then will they merit the positive verdict on the day of the Lord. And so this leaves Paul with a question that he must answer for his congregation. Do the uncircumcised Gentile Roman Christians need to become circumcised and observe Torah to be resurrected on the day of the Lord? And do they face condemnation and execution by God if they fail to do so? For Paul, the answer is an unambiguous no. So in the mock debate we're about to hear, Paul is primarily going to be refuting the teacher's claims by way of counter-arguments. So he'll use the teacher's own material against him. Now, in the handout, I have italicized um, where Paul is using the teacher's material. So I encourage you to follow along with the dialogue. Now, by doing this, Paul is proving that the teacher's claims are unsustainable, that even within his own paradigm, his message cannot save. And ultimately, this will lead to his central critique, which is that if God judges retributively, using the Torah as his standard, then no one can be justified. All will be condemned. However, before he says this, he needs to build his case. And to do so, he will make four critiques which will bracket the dialogue. We're going to explore these in greater depth after Becky and Rob go through the passage. So Paul is going to point out that if God judges retributively by works of Torah, then as the teacher claims he will, then the teacher will condemn himself by his own condemnation of the Gentiles. Two, possessing Torah will not give anyone an advantage on the day of the Lord. Three, not even teaching Torah will give one an advantage on the day of the Lord. And four, being circumcised will not give you an advantage on the day of the Lord. And these points are all going to lead to the conclusion that if God judges retributively by works of the law, everyone will be condemned Gentile, Jew, and Jewish missionary alike. 
And Paul is then going to present his own definition of God's justice, one that is marked chiefly by grace with no reference to retribution or merit, a passage that we will explore more in depth later on. But for now, I want to invite uh, Rob and Becky to come up here and perform the reading for us. The anger of God is revealed from heaven upon all the impiety and injustice of human beings who by injustice suppress the truth because the knowledge of God is illuminated within them. For God illuminated it for them. For from the creation of the world, his invisible features are clearly discerned, his eternal power and divinity understood from the features which were made so that they are without defense. Because while knowing God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but were rendered fruitless in their thinking, and their senseless heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, they were rendered fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image of a mortal human and birds and mammals and reptiles. Therefore, God handed them over to their heart's cravings, resulting in impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among each other. They exchanged God's truth for a lie and worshiped and honored the creation rather than the creator who is praised into the ages. Amen. Therefore, God handed them over to shameful passions, for even their females changed the natural use for what is contrary to nature. In the same way, the males abandoning the natural use of the females also burn in their desire for one another, males performing shameful deeds among males and receiving the recompense which was fitting their error in themselves. And as they did not deem it fit to acknowledge God, God handed them over to an unfit mind to do indecent things, having been filled with every injustice, malice, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, cunning, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, violent, arrogant, braggarts, inventors of evil, defiant of parents, senseless, faithless, ruthless, merciless. Though they know God's just decree that those who practice these things are deserving of death, they do not merely do them, but also give approval to those who practice them. So you are without defense, O oh man, everyone who judges, for in that you judge others, you judge yourself. For you who judges practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God upon all who practice such things is according to the truth. But do you, O oh man, you who judges those who practice such things and does the same, surmise that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you look down upon the riches of his goodness and clemency and magnanimity, ignorant that the kindness of God leads you to change your mind? Yet according to your callous and unrepentant heart, you are storing up anger for yourself on the day of anger, and a revelation of the just verdict of God who will repay each according to his works. To those who by endurance in good works seek glory and honor and immortality, the life of the age to come, but to those of self-interest disloyal to the truth, yet loyal to injustice, anger, and fury, affliction and distress upon every human soul which engages in evil, Jew first and Greek alike. But glory and honor and peace to those who work good, Jew first and Greek alike. For there is no partiality in God, for all who sin without the Torah, without Torah will perish, and all who with sin with Torah, within Torah, through Torah will be judged. 
For the hearers of Torah are not justified before God, but the doers of Torah will be justified. For whenever Gentiles who do not have the Torah do the things of the Torah by nature, they who do not have Torah are Torah to themselves, demonstrating that the works of Torah are written on their hearts, their conscience testifying along with them, their thoughts sometimes accusing them or even making a defense for them. On the day when, according to my good news, God judges humanity's secrets through Jesus Christ. But if you hear the name Jew and rest in Torah and boast in God and know his will and verify the superior ways, having received instruction by the Torah, having persuaded yourself that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in Torah. So do you who teach others not also teach yourself? You who proclaim not to steal, do you steal? You who say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in Torah, do you dishonor God through violating the Torah? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it has been written. For circumcision is beneficial to you if you practice Torah. However, if you happen to be a violator of the Torah, your circumcision becomes foreskin. So if the man with foreskin keeps the just judgments of the Torah, will not his foreskin be considered circumcision? And the man with foreskin physically fulfilling the Torah will judge you, a violator of the Torah, because of scripture and circumcision. For he is not a Jew who appears to be so, nor is circumcision something apparent in the flesh. But the Jew is one in secret, and circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not scripture. And the praise is not from humans, but from God. So what is the Jew's advantage? What is the benefit of circumcision? A, a great deal in every way. First, that they were entrusted with the words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, does their infidelity nullify the fidelity of God? Let it not be. But let God be true and every human being false, just as it is written, so that you might be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. However, if our injustice shows God's justice, what shall we say? That the God who inflicts his anger is unjust? I speak in human terms. Let it not be, since how then will God judge the world? However, if God's truth abounds in my falsehood unto his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not, as we are slanderously claimed by some to say, let us do evil so that good may come? Their verdict is just. What then? Do we excel? No, not at all. For we have already charged all Jews and, Je and Greeks alike to be under subjection to sin. Just as it is written, no one is just, no one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have gone astray, becoming futile together. No one does kindness. No one. Their mouth is an open grave. Their tongues work deceit. A snake's poison is on their lips. Their mouth is gorged with curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and distress are in their path. And they did not know the path of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know what the Torah says. It says to those within Torah, so that all mouths might be shut and the whole world might become accountable to God. 
since by works of Torah, all flesh will not be justified before him. For through Torah, full knowledge of sin. However, apart from Torah, God's justice has been manifested now, testified to by the Torah and the prophets. God's act of justice through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ unto all the faithful. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God and are liberated as a gift by his grace through the emancipation that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a place of atonement in his blood through faithfulness in order to demonstrate his justice through the dismissal of past sins in God's clemency for the sake of demonstrating his justice in the present season so that he might be just and liberate the one by faithfulness, Jesus. So as I said, we first heard uh, Rob give the bad news of the teacher's gospel, where he says that the Gentiles, they are culpable, and they are going to be judged. Paul is going to use several counter-arguments in this claim. And he's going to first say, that the teacher, in his own dialogue, has effectively condemned himself because he cannot plead innocent to every charge that he leveled against the Gentiles. Two, if God judges retributively by works of Torah, then there is no advantage to possessing Torah on the day of the Lord. Since, as the teacher made clear, Gentiles are informed enough to be culpable, and thus, Paul argues, they are theoretically informed enough to receive either verdict. And so this means that those who have Torah could end up getting condemned, and those without Torah could theoretically end up getting justified. Paul is pointing out that in the teacher's own paradigm, uh, Torah does not seem to be able to save anyone. So three, Paul then mocks the teacher for his exalted view of himself, right, calling him like a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. The teacher claims to have many benefits from the Torah, but Paul points out that one must practice Torah, not just have it or even teach it, to benefit from it. If God judges retributively by works of Torah, then even those who teach Torah cannot be confident that they will be justified. Possessing Torah, even teaching Torah, does not necessarily guard one from sin, and it does not necessarily mean you will receive the positive verdict on the day of the Lord. So the teacher also claims that circumcision is advantageous, but Paul sees this claim as lacking as well. Circumcision will not amount to an advantage because to break Torah at any point is to become effectively uncircumcised, and to keep it is to be effectively circumcised in heart or spirit, where it really matters. So then we saw Becky and Rob, the teacher and Paul, they go against each other, they argue for a little bit, but ultimately the teacher concedes, and this allows Paul to show that scripture itself testifies that it's not just the Gentiles who sin, but Jews as well, and even Jewish missionaries, those who teach Torah. And so this allows Paul to make his final claim, which is that if God judges retributively by works of Torah, as the teacher says he will, then all flesh will not be justified before God. Everyone will be condemned. No one will make it out alive. What is most important to highlight about uh, Romans 1 through 3 is that Paul is not describing the problem posed by our sin in the face of God's retribution. 
Justification theory reads this passage as contrasting two contracts, a works-based one and a grace-based one, two ways in which we can experience God based on whether or not we meet a certain criterion, two contracts that we can find ourselves in based on whether or not we have faith, one categorized by wrath, one categorized by love, but both incorporated within the broader scheme of God's retribution. This is not what Paul is doing. He is depicting two contrary images of God, one in which God's fundamental posture towards humanity is retribution, and another in which God is holy and totally gracious, giving his people what they need with no reference to what they have done. Paul rejects the retributive scheme of the teacher and displaces it with a God who is gracious all the way down. He writes that if the teacher's gospel is true, then we have no hope. We will all be condemned. But he swiftly assures his audience that this is not how God judges. In the next paragraph, Paul describes the true nature of God's justice as it is revealed in Jesus. So what is the nature of God's justice as Paul sees it? Well, I want to go through Romans 3, 21 through 26, which is the bottom paragraph in the handout. I have it up here, and it's the last one that Becky uh, spoke. And I hope by doing this, we will get a clearer picture of the nature of God's justice as Paul understands it. So he begins by claiming that God's justice is apart from Torah, but testified to by the Torah and the prophets. Now, this does not mean that Paul is throwing Torah away or even saying anything negative about it. Rather, the central role of Torah has merely been displaced by Jesus. Paul is not saying Torah was defective, but simply that something greater has come, and now it must be repurposed in light of that. No longer can the law be understood as the moral standard by which God judges, and it never truly was. Instead, its function was to testify to what God did through Christ. Its role is prophetic. It is not the moral standard by which God will judge for Paul. Now, God's justice is also manifested now. In the teacher's gospel, everything was set in the future. We had to wait to the turn of the ages before God's justice was revealed. But for Paul, God did not make us wait in anxiety to find out what God's justice was like. He did not make us stumble around in the dark. God has revealed the nature of his justice in the present. It is also through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now this phrase likely refers to Jesus' suffering and dying in committed faithfulness to the mission with which God entrusted him. For Paul, it is this event, Christ's passion, where God's justice is decisively manifest. You may have noticed that in the three chapters that the teacher's gospel was discussed, Jesus was mentioned only once in what amounts to a side note. The teacher had construed his understanding of God's justice without reference to the Christ event. And for Paul, this is a fatal error. Jesus' death is the definitive place where God has disclosed the nature of his justice, and it must be the primary lens through which we interpret it. So how did God's justice get revealed through Christ, and what is the problem that it solved? And how did it solve it? Well, Paul writes, for all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. In this passage, the glory of God is not God's standard of perfection, which we fall short of, as it's so often claimed to be in evangelistic tracts. Rather, it's the glorious image of God, the glorious presence of God, 
which Adam had in the Garden of Eden, something Paul will discuss in Romans chapter 5 and 6. And it's this image, this presence, this glory of God that provides humans with blessed life and benevolent dominion over the earth. It's that glory which we, in our present plight, are lacking. So for all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God and are liberated as a gift by his grace through the emancipation which is in Christ Jesus. So I want to start with this word emancipation. And it begs the question, emancipated from what? Well, in justification theory, we're enslaved by our moral debt to God. And we are emancipated through Jesus paying God this moral surplus we needed for God to forgive us. Paul, however, never speaks of humans incurring this kind of moral debt to God. In his understanding, human beings are principally enslaved to the powers of sin and death. Paul gives his fullest treatment of sin and death in Romans 5 through 8. And here, Paul does not merely speak of sin as like an act of disobedience against God. And he does not speak of death as the moment when one's heart stops beating. Rather, for him, sin and death are real and potent forces that pervade the entire world. He refers to them as kings. He says that they entered the cosmos, that they have dominion. He writes that they scheme, that they take advantage of opportunities, and he refers to them as the slaveholders of humanity. So when Paul says that our emancipation is in Jesus, he is communicating that through Jesus, God emancipates humanity from these powers and purchases them for himself. So now going back to this word, what I have translated, liberation. Now this is the Greek word dikaiu, and it's normally translated as justified. So at its most basic level, it's a legal term, and it means to rule in someone's favor. However, we should remember that judicial verdicts are both indicative and performative. And that means they not only have a pronouncement about the defendant, they also have an effect on the defendant. In the case of a court decision, a person who receives a favorable verdict is set free from prison. And furthermore, in the ancient world, when the verdict was pronounced, the justified party did not have to await the sentence to go through layers upon layers of bureaucracy before he was finally released. Rather, at the magistrate's behest, the doors of his cell would open, and he was set free. We can even imagine the context in which Paul himself would have heard this word. Paul spent a lot of time in jail, and when the magistrate got tired of holding him there, he would have given the order saying, Dikayu, meaning set him free, let him go. And Paul would have been released immediately. And so in Paul's world, the conceptual gap between a word like justified and set free is considerably smaller. And consequently, this Greek word, Dikayu, had a broader semantic range than our word, justification. However, if we are to believe that this is the meaning that Paul was invoking, if he meant set free, we would hope there would be an instance in which this meaning is unambiguous. And there is. In Romans 6-7, Paul writes that the one who has died has been dikayu from sin. And perhaps if we were to read this sentence in isolation, we might imagine it means justified. But Paul writes this in the context of speaking about sin as our slaveholder. One does not need to be justified from a slaveholder. One needs to be set free or liberated. And only this meaning can function effectively within the passage. And this is not a controversial claim. Every major translation renders dikayu as set free or a close equivalent 
in Romans 6-7. And so Campbell is merely asking that we translate this word consistently and apply this translation to Romans 3, this passage, as well, especially due to its close proximity with emancipation, which is another liberating kind of word. So we might still imagine, though, that to be justified or liberated, one first needs to be found morally upright. But general moral rectitude is not necessarily in view. A judge may very well rule in someone's favor, regardless if he or she is a generally upright person. It only means that he has been given a favorable verdict by the judge. And so dikayu is God's command to release the prisoners from the confines of sin and death. And he issues this command not because they have merited it, but as Paul says, out of his grace as a gift. So next, Paul calls Jesus, whom God set forth as a place of atonement in his blood. And so here, Paul unambiguously relays Jesus' death in sacrificial terms. He calls him this place of atonement in his blood. Now, justification theory typically views sacrifice through the lens of retribution. Right? We've all heard this before. God must punish sin with death. And God punishes the sacrifice with death in our stead so that we can get out unscathed. But this is not really an accurate assessment of Jewish sacrificial practices. And as the Eastern Orthodox Church has long recognized, sacrifice in the Old Testament is not about the death of the animal. It's about the life found in its blood. In the atonement sacrifice, the priest kills the animal and takes its blood into the presence of God and asks that God that he infuse the blood with new life. And so now, as it once gave life to the animal, God, in his pure, unconditional grace, makes this blood effective to give life to the community. And now the blood can be used to wash and sanctify the temple. Hence why it works so well with Paul's argument. We killed Jesus, his blood was spilt by our hand, but God, out of the abundance of his grace, with no need for placation, makes his blood the place where we can receive life free of charge. And God did this to demonstrate his justice, the nature of his justice, through the dismissal of past sins in God's clemency. Justification theory tends to imagine that God is saying here that God stored up his wrath, patiently bearing it until he was ready to mete it out onto Jesus. But as we've seen, Paul never really claims that this is how Jesus' death functions. What Paul is claiming here is exactly what he says. God has overlooked or dismissed our sins in his clemency to demonstrate the nature of his justice. Jesus did not have to get punished in order for God to forgive us our sins. His sending of Jesus is his act of forgiveness of our sins. It's his gracious act of sending us a deliverer who is willing to die to save us from sin and death. God has taken no heed of our own merit. He has looked past our sins, and he has liberated his people out of his clemency. So if I were to summarize Paul's gospel as he articulates it here, I might say, in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, God revealed the power of his love made perfect in our human weakness. Embracing our humanity, Jesus showed us the way of salvation. Loving us to the end, he gave himself to death for us. Dying for his own, he set us free from the bonds of sin so that we might rise and reign with him in glory. 
This is what we recite every Sunday before the Eucharist. And I hope that you can see that we have been given this message by Paul. Paul's message is not one in which we have to fear God exacting his retributive justice upon us, in which Jesus' death serves as a way to placate him. It's a message about love, liberation, and the hope of returning to our place of glory. And so I hope that a clearer image of Paul's understanding of God's justice is emerging. We've seen that it's apart from Torah. It is revealed in the present. It is revealed through Christ's willingness to suffer and die for us. It liberates us or emancipates us from sin and death. It is entirely gracious with no reference to our own merit. It is atoning, which is to say life-giving. And it has demonstrated that God has dismissed his, our sins out of his clemency. So now I want to look at this word specifically and determine how Paul is using it. So justice is different for different parties. Right? The justice of a judge and the justice of a defendant are different concepts. And furthermore, in the ancient world, justice was not simply a judicial category or a legal term. It can be broadly defined as doing one's civic or social duty. And so if we're going to give justice this kind of broad definition that the ancient world had, it's extremely important that we place God's justice in the proper context. As I said earlier, justification theory tends to understand God's justice in a judicial context. But when we look at the verses from which Paul is drawing from in Romans, he's particularly dependent on a few psalms. And in each of these, every one, God is portrayed as a divine king. Now, as moderns, we might think of kings as distant figures, like the monarchs of France or, France or the British Empire. But in the ancient world, the ideal king had an intimate and loving role with his people. And in the ancient world, the fundamental civic duty, the justice of the ideal king, was not simply in giving each as they deserve. Rather, for a king to be just, it was his sacred duty to protect the people over whom he has charge. And we can see this very clearly in Psalm 143, the psalm which Paul quotes from just prior to this passage. And it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications in your faithfulness. In your justice, answer me. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued me, crushing my life to the ground, making me sit in darkness like those long dead. Save me, O Lord, from my enemies. I have fled to you for refuge. In your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your justice, bring me out of trouble. In your steadfast love, cut off my enemies, destroy my adversaries. For Lord, I am your servant. The psalmist does not fear God's justice. He yearns for it. He asks for God's justice, and simultaneously, he asks him for God not to treat him as his sins deserve. For justification theory, this is a contradiction of terms. But justice here is not being understood as retribution. Rather, the psalmist is asking God, his divine king, to treat him as is just for a king to treat his subjects, to rescue him. And this is the context in which we must seek to define God's justice. 
God's justice is his commitment to rescue his people from any trouble in which they find themselves in, self-caused or otherwise. The justice of a king is not simply in giving people the punishments or rewards they deserve. It is a duty to rescue the people who are under his sovereign care from any peril that should threaten them. It is not far off to say that to appeal to God's justice in the context of the Psalms and Paul is to appeal to his love. And that's exactly what the psalmist does right at the bottom verse. In the sending of Christ, God has demonstrated that his fundamental posture towards humanity is one of unconditional benevolence. God does not operate with categories of deserving and undeserving. God rescues his people because he has lovingly elected them into existence. He has chosen to be their king. He is our protector, our defender. And this is why Paul's primary reference for God is father. The primary orientation of a father is not one of retributive justice. A father does not look at his child like a nameless rap sheet with no prior commitment to him. No, Paul provides us with a vision in which God our Father is committed to us permanently and irrevocably and completely. One may worry that by conceptualizing God in this way, we abandon certain crucial elements of our relationship with God, like anger, punishment, repentance, and forgiveness. But that's not what I'm trying to say. Rather, we just need to place these elements in the right context. One that is entirely categorized by a pre-existing relationship in which God is completely committed to our well-being with no threat of condemnation. As Paul himself writes, God is the one who liberates. Who then condemns? Is it Christ Jesus, the one who has died, who has raised, who, has been, who is at God's right hand, who is interceding for us? No. Right? For Paul, God does not deal in condemnation. God liberates. Now, the difference in this kind of justice is the difference between giving someone rehab and giving someone the death penalty. These are not two levels of severity. These are spawning from two different understandings of what justice is. One that is about fairness, giving to each as he deserves, and the other is about restoration. It is about rectifying what has gone wrong. And that is God's justice as Paul understands it. When a child behaves in a way that harms herself and others, a good parent gets angry. A good parent even punishes. And so too, repentance and forgiveness are a necessary component to any relationship. But therein lies the crucial difference. It is a relationship, a permanent relationship. A father may punish his child, but never with the threat of full and final condemnation. Think back to the story of the prodigal son. Is there need for repentance from the son? Yes. Is there need for forgiveness from the father? Yes. But from beginning to end and every step in between, the son is always a son. And no amount of sin could cost him that status because it was never a conditional relationship in the first place. For Paul, God is not an impartial judge with no prior commitment to us. He is a loving king, or better yet, a father who desires nothing but to rescue his children from any harmful situation in which they find themselves. He is a just God, which for Paul is to say, 
a loving one. So uh, Paul now has four questions that he kind of still needs to answer. And he's going to do this throughout the rest of Romans. So the first one is, does the story of Abraham throw a wrench in this gospel? That's what he'll be answering in Romans chapter 4. Two, does a Torah-free gospel lead to a kind of libertine or laissez-faire ethic? So how, does, how do we actually get a kind of morality or ethic out of a Torah-free gospel? Three, what does this mean for non-Christian Jews? So has God abandoned them? Are they consigned to destruction? Paul will answer a very hearty no in Romans 9 through 11. And then four, what is the ethic that follows from a Torah-free gospel? What are the specific ethics and imperatives that follow from this gospel? And that's what he'll be answering in Romans chapter 12 through 16. So if I've said anything today that has been of interest to you, I encourage you to read the rest of the letter to the Romans and find out how Paul answer these, answers these questions. Um, so hopefully now we have maybe any time for questions or, okay, that's fine. All right. Come <laughs> on.